Morning, church. I know this is not typical, especially for a long-winded preacher to get up and just stand silent for a minute or two, but uh, I really want your attention as I begin this morning. I know that every speaker has gotten up here and sort of echoed what I'm about to say, but it bears saying again. And I believe I speak for all of us, certainly for myself, when I say I cannot tell you how much we appreciate this congregation, the opportunity that you have given us to come to fellowship with you, to share the word of God, to be a part of your local family as we are all part of the one family of God. For all of the preparation, um, all of the food preparation, the, the wonderful time last night and the Rollerts opening up their home, uh, every last little bit and piece of this lectureship, we appreciate so very, very much from the bottom of our hearts. And we want to thank you. We owe you so much. And. Uh, I know you often say to speakers, we're glad you came and all that, and we're glad. We'd rather hear that than have you say, really wish we hadn't invited you. But at the same time, um, we are very blessed, and I thank you. I thank you. My assigned text and title for this morning is Go Wash in the Jordan from 2 Kings chapter 5 and verses 1 through 27, as has already been mentioned. I would ask that you please turn and open your Bibles there, follow along as I have said before so often. Do not trust me. If your faith is in me to always say and do the right thing, you are in a very precarious place spiritually. Trust God, not Doug. Open your Bibles and check Doug out. The Apostle Paul was not offended uh, by the Bereans checking out what he had to say, and I certainly, therefore, am not an apostle, nor am I offended. In fact, I insist upon it. Having said all of that, the uh, story that I have this morning is is pretty straightforward account on the surface, but although that's true, there are a number of hidden nuggets of illustration and information and application in this Old Testament account that I hope maybe you are considering for the first time, perhaps this morning. For example, did you know that it is one of the most popular stories in the Old Testament? in that it indeed has the distinction of being mentioned by Jesus himself, as Silas read to us from Luke chapter 4 in verse 27. Our Lord uh, spoke of this account indeed himself. This account is actually the account of two miracles, not just one, two miracles. One was the removal of leprosy, the other one was the infliction of leprosy. One was wrought upon a foreigner and a man of great eminence. The other was wrought on a Hebrew and a servant. And that brings us to the third little unmistakable nugget or, or application which can be made here that, that maybe you'd never really thought about, and I guess I hadn't until I started studying for this, but I want you to consider... We all know the story of the prodigal son. We know that in that story, it has been alluded to many times, that the father in the prodigal son is a good representation of God the Father, that the prodigal son is a good representation of the Gentiles who left God, as it were, and that the elder son in that story of the prodigal son is, is pretty representative of the Jewish nation who stayed with God but had a problem 
in the New Testament times especially when God showed the same love and favor on the Gentiles. We read that in Ephesians chapter 2. And so we see that parallel. In this story, we have something very similar. I want you to think about this. Brother, uh, uh, and it goes like this. The man of God could be representative, certainly as God's spokesperson he was, but representative of God's will. And as we consider the story and we go down through, Naaman represents the Gentiles, obviously. He's from a pagan nation. And Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, represents the Jewish nation. And we know as we get to the, to the end of this story that Gehazi has a big problem with the favoritism showed to the pagan Syrian by the man of God. In fact, Matthew Henry commented that Gehazi's stroke may be looked upon as typical of the blinding and rejecting of the Jews who envied God's grace to the Gentiles as Gehazi envied Elisha's favor towards Naaman. There are a number of others, but where this is such a familiar story, I wanted to maybe um, whet your appetite with those as, as we begin as perhaps things you hadn't thought of before. Verse 1, 2 Kings, chapter 5. <clears throat> now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Now, if he had been an Israelite, he would not have served in this capacity. He would have been an outcast of sorts. But he wasn't an Israelite. He was a pagan Syrian. And so, being a member of a pagan nation, he could serve in that role. It's vital for us to understand and remember as well that Israel had been at war for a long time with Syria. Syria and Israel were enemies. In fact, if you go back, if we were to go back, we're not going to, but if we were to go back to 1 Kings chapter 20, we would read in that chapter that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, had waged war against King Jehoram's father, King Ahab, many years ago. This war had been ongoing, okay? Or these wars, this, this conflict, this hostility. Now, if we were to continue reading back in 1 Kings chapter 20 through that chapter, we would see that the Lord gave his people back then this great couple of decisive victories against Ben-Hadad's forces, Ben-Hadad's overwhelming forces. This resulted in a great slaughter of the Syrians back in 1 Kings 20 and verse 21, with over 125,000 Syrian casualties in the battle that followed the next spring, and we read that in 1 Kings 20, verses 23 to 30. And so, as we move forward from 1 Kings 20 and, and those conflicts and those things and those casualties, we see that even though Ahab is now dead, that his son Jehoram has become king. 1 Kings, I'm uh, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 1. And, and even with that time passage, there's still hostility between the two nations. And Syria has now gained the upper hand, at least for the moment. We, we see that in our reading here of how the Lord has given victory to Syria in 2 Kings 5, in verse 1. There's no doubt that a lot of Syria's victory 
is, yes, it's because of, of God, and, and we read that, but it's also because God used mighty men of valor, such as Naaman. So, again, enemies here. Don't, don't lose sight of that. We move forward in verses 2 and 3, and it says, And the Syrians had gone out on raids, and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who's in Samaria, he'd heal him of his leprosy. <laughs> I love this little girl. I just absolutely adore this little girl. When we read of the Syrians in verse 2 having gone out on raids, we might think of old western movies and cowboys and Indians, or we might think of medieval movies and these marauding bands that went over borders and, and they would go into these small towns and villages and, and kill people and bring back captives and all, and, that, and that's what was going on here. And so as I said last night at the, at the fireside chat there, we don't know what happened to the little girl's parents. Maybe they were killed in the raid. Maybe they were taken captive and they had to serve other Syrians. We don't know. It doesn't appear as though that they are um, where she is. And I want you to think about that little girl. Think about what she's been through. To lose both parents, perhaps, during this time. Be easy. Isn't it easy sometimes when we go through a terrible thing to just wonder where God is? To maybe even doubt a little bit that God hears us or God knows, even though we sing the song, you know, Jesus knows and cares. Sometimes we can get so tempted to, to really question in our own minds, where's God? But this little girl's not like that. Well, you know what? If he was, if he was with the man of God, take care of it. Love her faith. Love her faith. What an incredible example for us to follow. I, I want to go to a theme that has been mentioned here throughout, and that is this. Consider, instead of harboring anger, bitterness, malice, resentment in her heart, even for her enemies, she instead chose to reflect love, compassion, and assistance to her enemies, the Syrians who had captured her in this raid. Spoke last night about how that is such a great lesson for us as we read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, and from Romans chapter 12. Jesus said, Unless you become like little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. I believe that this little girl's example is one that certainly bears emulation when it comes to a love and, and giving assistance to even those who may be hostile toward us. You know, her example should also serve, no matter what age you are as a Christian, her example should also serve as an encouragement to always speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter who's listening, no matter your circumstances, no matter your situation, no matter who's there, always be ready. We know Peter said, be prepared to give an answer, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. We understand it. But do we every day think about, do we pray when we get out of bed in the morning? Lord, give me an opportunity and help me to remember to speak up for you today. Do we need to speak up for Jesus more? Is there anybody in this room that says, you know what, I speak up for Jesus way too much. I think I ought to do that less. After what he's done for me? No. And so, like this little girl, we need to be willing to do that. Even when we've been through a terrible time, even 
when it's maybe to speak up with love and compassion to those who are responsible in some way for that time. I want, I want you to really get this next point. I won't say it twice, just listen twice as hard, okay? I have it in my notes, say it twice, but here we go. It is this forever unnamed, faceless to us, but still faithful and unashamed little servant girl who proves to be far more powerful, far more powerful than even the mighty man of valor, Naaman, the armies that he commanded, or the kings of those nations and all of their forces combined, she's more powerful. Did you, do you know that? You've you got to understand this. You know why she was more powerful? Because Naaman, the mighty man of valor, he couldn't cure his leprosy, could he? Nope. What about these kings? What about their nations? What about their resources? Did they know how to cure leprosy? Nope. Did this little girl know how to cure it? Yep. Get him to the man of God. She had more power than all of those entities combined. That's pretty cool. But... I'll save that point for later. Verses 4 through 7. I got a good one. I want to unleash on you, but I'll wait till I get there. Okay. Verse 4. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel, king of Syria, said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said... Now be advised, <laughs> oh boy, now be advised, when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Yeah, like that's going to happen. We just had this discussion, didn't we? They couldn't do it. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. Let's take it verse by verse. The gifts in verse 5 were not for Jehoram, the king of Israel, but they were for the prophet, as we'll see later, in exchange for his healing of Naaman. The letter, written from the king of Syria to the king of Israel, was written as to a subordinate as to an underling. It was telling him, you're going to do this. Okay? That's, it. That's all there is to it. You're going to do it. And so, it's no wonder that in verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, he thought, king of Syria start, wants to start a fight because he's put me in an impossible situation. There is no way I can do this. This can't be done. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's utterly impossible. It cannot be done, and yet he's commanding me, for all intents and purposes, to do it. So, okay. So why didn't he appeal to Elisha? Why didn't the king of Israel, Jehoram, appeal to Elisha, the God of heaven, as well, whom Elisha served? Well, pretty simple answer for that. Jehoram, the king of Israel, 
was the son of, guess who? Our, our favorite couple, right? <laughs> Ahab and Jezebel. Again, 2 Kings 3 and verse 1. So, when you understand that, you understand why the king, even in this impossible position, would not go to Elisha. Because he rejected the authenticity of Elisha's prophetic service for the one true God of heaven. But that's okay. That's okay, because you know what? <laughs> if he wouldn't go to Elijah, Elijah go to him. I love that. That's exactly what he does, verse 8. So it was, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Hey, why are you so upset? Why are you so upset at this letter? That, that's the way this unfolds. He says, please let him come to me and he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. I wish I could preach till about three this afternoon. I probably could, but I won't. Um, there's so much in verse 8 that I wish we had time to focus on, but we don't. But I, I want to make just a couple of, of quick notes because they're just too good to, to skip over. Okay? First and foremost... Just like the little captive girl that we saw in verses 2 and 3, just like her willingness to help, I, I want you to understand, I want you to see the great and overwhelming love and concern that Elisha has. I want you to see this in his willingness to come to the rescue of this king, Jehoram. Jehoram did not admit, like, like his mom and dad, Ahab and Jezebel, King Jehoram wanted nothing to do we didn't want to even begin to believe that, that Elisha was a man of the true God in the sense that he'd ought to be following him. He didn't respect Elisha. He, he sought to reject and deny the commandments of the God whom Elisha served. And what does Elisha do to his enemy? He says, hey, let me bail you out. Right? Is that what he's saying? Let me bail you out. Send him to me. I'll fix this. Just like that little girl. You know... Jesus taught us in Luke 6, 27 through 36, there's going to be times when people are going to hate us for our Christianity. Okay? You know what our responsibility is? Our responsibility is to love them with the love of God and show them the reality of the God of heaven through the way we treat them. Don't miss that. Remember, to fuel the fire even further, it was King Jehoram's parents, Ahab and Jezebel, particularly Jezebel, who had taken the lives of many prophets of God. We, we heard that earlier on. We've seen that earlier on as we studied. And this, this was the perfect opportunity for Elisha to get even. This was the perfect opportunity. Remember that it was Jezebel who had sought to take the life of Elisha's predecessor, Elijah. His mentor, if you will. It was Jezebel. And now, here's Ahab and Jezebel's son, and he's kind of out there on a branch all by himself, and it would have been really, really, really easy for Elisha to say, okay, you reap what you sow, pal. You wanted to hang my predecessor out there? You wanted his life? Well, guess what? If you can't heal this leper, yours is going to hang in the balance, buddy. Enjoy it. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't seek to get even. He doesn't seek to take his own vengeance. What does the Bible say about taking our own vengeance? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We're not taking it. Romans chapter 12. 
And so he comes to his rescue. I think that is a point that, that we must, must, must understand. Listen. To the true servant of God, it is far more important to show your enemies the power of God and the reality of God and the nature of God by the way you treat them. How do you show somebody who's been, who's been after you, somebody who's been hostile toward you because of your Christianity? You're one of those church people. You're one of those, you know, and on and on. How do you convince them that God is real? Because they ain't going to listen to what you have to say. You know how you convince them? You convince them because the first opportunity that they give you to get even with them, you show them the love of God instead. That's how you prove God's real to them. You treat them different. We've talked about Matthew 7, 12. You treat them different than they would treat you under the same circumstances. And, and that's what we see. Like I said, there's, there's so much, so much in this verse. Second thing I want to briefly note is that point that I held off until now. Although both of these kings had power over earthly armies and nations and kingdoms, neither one of them alone nor all of them together had one iota of the power of Elisha. Elisha can heal leprosy. None of them can, no matter their accomplishments, no matter their armies. Just like that little girl knew where to find it, now we get it down to Elisha. Do you agree that none of those nations, none of those armies or commanders were as powerful as Elisha because Elisha could cure leprosy. Does that make sense to you all? Okay. Because here's, here's what I want you to understand. Do you know who the most powerful person slash people on the planet are? Think It's not the Supreme Court justices. It's not senators and congressmen, not even the president of the United States. He is not the most powerful person on the planet. He's not. And I'll tell you why. The reason why is because every decision they make, every law they lay down, only affects people until their last breath. Is that right? That's it. Right? Don't matter who the president is, doesn't matter what party you are of or aren't or whatever, all of that stuff. Those folks' laws are only going to govern what they have to do, only has to do with until that last breath is taken, right? You, as a Christian, hold in your hand God's weapon of mass salvation. You do. The Bible and the message that we have to take to the masses, we have something that we can give them that will last beyond their last breath. We can determine eternal destinies. President of the U.S. can't do that, right? Who's the most powerful people on the planet? You are. But do you, do you live that? Do you realize that? Do you really understand? I want you to think about this. What we hold in our hand. And sometimes we refuse to share the gospel and, and we think, oh no, that person's not going to love me or whatever. We have got the most powerful weapon on the planet. Man is never going to devise a weapon that will take you beyond death. That will for all eternity have an impact on you. You and I have got it between Genesis and Revelation. Isn't that awesome? So just like Elisha is the most powerful person in this scenario, understand 
that we have a weapon that tears down strongholds that will that will determine destinies beyond the grave second corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 5 moving on in our story verses 9 and 10 then naaman went with his horses and chariot and he stood at the door of elijah's house and elijah sent a messenger to him saying Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Now, I know it's familiar. I understand that. But we're taping this, and, and only the good Lord knows who's going to hear this lesson as, as the days and weeks and months go by. So even though we're familiar with this and, and what it has to do with us under the New Testament, I, I want to lay it out there. Elijah in verse 9, in verse 10, lets him know exactly what to do, where to do it, how many times to do it, and exactly what the outcome would be once he had done it. Fair? Simple. It's interesting to note that the Hebrew word that is used here means to dip and is identified with the Greek New Testament word baptizo. And so Naaman was to be immersed or dipped seven times in the River Jordan. Couldn't have been any simpler. As the old commercial on TV used to say, it's so simple a caveman could do it. This was not rocket science. This was real simple. Go to the Jordan. Go wash the Jordan seven times. Flesh will be restored. Boom, boom, bang, done. Faith in the Bible, is simply believing God enough to do what he said. Hebrews 11, all those great heroes of faith, all they did was what God told them to do. Noah built, Abraham went, you know the story, right? Same thing as James chapter 2. Faith in the Bible, it's not just intellectually believing that Jesus existed and he was the son of God. Faith in the Bible means that you do what he said because he is Lord. James chapter 2, as was already mentioned again this morning, James chapter 2, um, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Uh, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. By the way, how can you show somebody your faith without your works? Think about this. We're studying this back in Shoto on Wednesday nights. The only way you can show somebody your faith is by how you live and act, right? How else you can show them? You can only show them by what you do. Well, it's pretty simple. Naaman, do this. God, take care of it. So Naaman rose up immediately and went right out and did it. Now, he didn't. How difficult is it if you guys say after this service, hey, if you go out here and down the stairs, lunch is at the bottom of the stairs. You go down, you can eat. Pretty simple, right? This was no more complicated than that. Now, the Bible says, no, Naaman did not just get up and go do it. Look at verses 11 and 12. Naaman became furious. I've got this highlighted in my Bible, the word furious, my yellow eye. He's furious. He went away and he said, indeed, I said to myself, he'll surely come out to me and, and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and, and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. I knew what he was going to do. I, I, I had it all planned just the way God was going to do what I wanted him to do. Um, we still got that anyway. And then he says, are not the Arbana the, and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? And couldn't I wash them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in a, I've got this one highlighted too, rage. Furious, mad, he did, eh, couldn't I do this and this and how come this and I can't do this? And so Naaman 
went away still in need of healing. Don't miss that. He's so angry. He goes away, still a leper, still in need of healing. Why, why on earth would he do that when complete and total healing was there for the taking? Uh, think about that. Complete and total healing is his for the taking. It's free. All he's got to do is go get it where God said it was. That's it. Total. This is critical. This is essential to every single sinner's cleansing from sin today. If you don't take anything else home from this lesson this morning, take this with you. The reason he left in such a furious rage, still a leper and still in need of healing, listen closely, was because God's answer was not the answer which he had anticipated and expected and prepared himself to hear. That's it. That's it. That's all of it. And he threw away this cleansing because God's answer was not the answer that he had anticipated that God would give him. He said that in verse 11. He said as much in verse 11. Thought Elijah, Elisha just come out and wave his hand around. And well, why do you think that? Well, maybe it's the way he was raised. Maybe it's what he'd always heard about the way that some of the, the false and unbiblical gods of his upbringing operated. Maybe that was it. He'd just wave a hand or they're priests of these false gods, maybe. Maybe like many today, he was just looking for a quick fix, something just boom, that demanded no action or obedience on his part, no participation, as we talked about in Bible class. Quick and easy. Somebody else fix this for me. I don't want to put anything into it. Whatever the reason, he left in a rage. And do you notice as he's leaving in verses 11 and 12, all the way he's seeking to justify his rage. He's seeking to justify not doing what God said to do. He is seeking to justify his actions and conclusions based on physical, human, logical reasoning as he storms away. For, for example, he says, well, well, aren't the, the rivers of Abner and, and Farpar, aren't they, aren't they better? And as I read and studied for this, I found out that those two rivers are, are a lot cleaner, typically, than the Jordan is. It's sort of like the water up here in New England. We, we're down in Oklahoma, a lot of the water, you go out up to your thighs in water, you can't see your toes. I mean, it's not like the Saco River down here, okay? It's that kind of comparison. And, and the water was a lot cleaner back in the Abnar and the Farpar. And, and another thing, maybe, as he's, as he's reasoning this out, the nearest point of the Jordan was about 20 to 30 miles away. It wasn't going to be an easy trek. I mean, he couldn't go out and jump in his Ferrari and, you know, ride down the river there in 20 minutes based on his GPS. It was 20 to 30 miles. So it was with the wagons and the entourage and the treasure. It was quite a little trip. I mean, this was going to take him a while, a day or two. And why seven times? Wasn't one enough? You know why seven times? You know why seven times? Because God said seven times, period. That's why. But despite all of his human man-made logic, listen, all of his human, physical, man-made logic and justifications were about as useless as human, physical, man-made attempts to cure his leprosy. If you're going to go to God, hear me clear, if you're going to go to God to heal what only God can heal, then you're going to have to do it the way God said to do it. 
Only God can forgive sins eternally, right? If you're going to go to God to have your sins cleansed, then to do what only God can do, then you're going to have to do it only God's way. Same thing here. And obviously, I cannot overemphasize how his walking away and seeking to justify his anger for not obeying God's commandments for his cleansing perfectly mirrors, perfectly mirrors the actions and attitudes of those today who do the exact same thing, not in reference to their earthly cleansing from leprosy, but in regards to their eternal cleansing from sin. Same thing. God has made it so easy a child can understand it. Brethren, Jesus made this so simple when it comes to our cleansing. God couldn't have made it any easier. Couldn't have made it any simpler. We're familiar, Mark 16, 16. Jesus said to him, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. How difficult is that to understand? Right? Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Not hard. 1 Peter 3.21, baptism now saves you. Really easy. Acts 22.16, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Pretty simple, ain't it? By the way, real quickly, People want to talk about calling on the name of the Lord. The Bible is its own best definer. And the Bible tells us in Acts 22, 16, when you call on the name of the Lord. It's when you're baptized, have your sins washed away. That's what, how the Bible defines it. And I don't care how Webster defines it or anybody else. That's how God defined it. It couldn't have been any simpler. Couldn't be any clearer. Why do people get so angry? Brother Kaufman told of a in his commentary, he wrote about how he vividly remembered an incident in 1932 at the base hospital in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, when the wife of a high-ranking military officer fell while visiting her son in the area. She sent word to Kaufman to visit her. She asked what to do to be saved, since she realized her death was near. The great passages pertaining to the forgiveness of sins as found in the New Testament were read in her hearing. Prayers were offered, and she was invited to obey the gospel. She thought about it a while and then said, Well, baptism has always seemed to me, to be such an insignificant thing that I just can't believe it would do any good. God makes his instructions very clear. You don't need to be a brain surgeon. You don't even need to be a man of valor and high standing to understand that because we read in verse 13 that his servants understood it. His servants understood it, and, and when he calmed down, he listened to what they had to say, as we see in verse 14, and he went and did it. And guess what happened? <laughs> you know, when we do what God tells us to do in order for God to give us a certain thing, guess what's going to happen? God's going to do exactly what he said when we do exactly what God told us to do to get it. Simple as that. Verse 15. He returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him. That wasn't a small feat. I want you to understand, that's about 50 miles out of his way round trip. 50 miles. Because the Jordan was, you know, 20 to 30 miles away from the prophet's house. And, and so he gets there. When he gets, to, when he gets to the Jordan, keep in mind, see if I can draw this out here. Elisha's house is here. About, we'll say 25 miles is a good average, about where the nearest point of the Jordan was. At this point, Naaman the Syrian is a quarter of the way home. He's a quarter of the way back home, okay? So in another three days or so, he could be back home. But what does he do? 
Instead of going the rest of the way home, what does he do? When he comes up out of that water and he's clean, he makes a U-turn, he goes back at least a day's journey, and that's going to make him come back a day's journey. All of those horses, all of those servants, all of that money, all of that. And why did he do it? I'll tell you why he did it. I'll tell you why he did it. One reason and one reason only. Say thank you. Why did it? We read of a story later on, Jesus in the Gospels, where in the same area he heals ten lepers. One returned said, thank you. If you're under the age of 20, please stand up. If you're under the age of 20, please stand up. 20 and younger, teenagers, 20 and under, stand up. I pick on you because you're the youngest. Okay? Because I want to make a point about your age. Listen. If you live to be 120 years old and you are in church every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening and every Wednesday evening and you come back here to say thank you to God around this table, you will still not have adequately thanked him for what he has done in sending his son for you. You can sit down. Now, I wasn't picking on you. I just wanted the youngest ones because if they live to be 120 or if you do, they're going to have more years. We can't thank God enough. We can't come back and say thank you to God enough. It doesn't matter how many days journey it is out of our way. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. It didn't matter. And so he came back and he said thank you. And when he gets back, we see in the following verses that he tries to give the prophet money. But it's not about the man, the money, or anything else. It was about God and God alone. And the prophet makes that clear. So Naaman in verses 17 and following, he knows that when he gets back that he's going to have to go in with the king to this false god's temple, and, but he's come to realize that there's only one true God, and, and so he's, he's wanting to take some earth or some dirt with him from this land, some holy ground, if you will, because back then people believed that the gods of these certain nations only resided in those nations, not over all the world. So I figured if he could take some Israelite dirt with him, some holy ground, a god would always be with him. And that's, that's kind of the way their mind worked. And, and so he asks permission to do that and gets the permission and does it. Then we get to verse 20 and it says, Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and take something from him. <laughs> yeah, okay. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And don't you love the, the shift here? Don't you love the shift in Naaman's attitude? comes and stands at Elisha's house at first, and he's the commander, and you know he just gets all upset. Now for Elisha's servant, he's dismounting from his horse and showing respect. Right? Isn't that awesome? Or whatever he's riding on. So Gehazi pursued him. Naaman saw him running after him, got down from the chariot, not the horse, to meet him. Said, is all well? He said, all is well. My master has sent me, saying, indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of garments, handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. The spiritual overtones for our day are unmistakable. Okay? As we said earlier, we can see a reflection of the Jews, Gentiles, 
God's favor to, to both under the new covenant, and we can see some of that envy of Gehazi, the servant. Well, if, if, if my master Elisha didn't take advantage of some of this golden riches of, the, of this pagan, I'll go relieve him of some of them, which he does, and he lies about it, and so on and so forth. And you know, this reminds me of some of today's crooked fundraisers and self-serving charities. Now, not all fundraisers and charities are crooked. Don't go home and say, Doug said, no, that's not what I'm saying. But some of these false religions are in it for the money, according to 2 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 3. And that's one of the things I love about the churches of Christ. Okay? I, didn't, I wasn't raised in church. One of the things I love about the churches of Christ, we don't hold concerts and things like that, and oh, by the way, we'll have a free will love offering while you're here. In the Lord's church, it is the responsibility of the members and the members only to support the work of the Lord's church, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. I have often said when we have invited people to church in written form, you are not, please don't bring your money. We don't want it. It's not the pagan's job to fund the Lord's work. That's why we don't have bake sales and car washes and all those fundraisers, right? It is our, yours and my responsibility out of gratitude for the Christ. Is that right? That's right. So the, the, the overtones here are, are easy to see. There are others. But for the sake of time, moving on, verses 25 and following, we see that when he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand, stored them away in his house. He let the men go, and they departed. Really nice, too, of Naaman, wasn't it? He went above and beyond and actually had servants help him out in addition to what he'd asked. I thought that was cool. Now he went in, stood before his master, Elijah, and said to him, who said to him, where'd you go, Gehazi? <laughs> he said, your servant did not go anywhere. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep, oxen, male and female servants? Gehazi, and we've seen Gehazi serving Elisha in other portions of this, this meeting. He said, is it really time to make worldly possessions our priority, Gehazi? Is that really, is that what we've come to here? Is that what this is all about? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. Listen, if you stoop to the world's devices in order to obtain the world's riches, then you will inherit the world's curses. Simple as that. You see, this is the second miracle. This is the instant instant, full-blown infliction of full-blown leprosy, just like Miriam, the sister of Moses, experienced in Numbers 12 and verse 10. You know what? Here's the bottom line. If Gehazi wanted what Naaman had, Gehazi was going to get what Naaman had, only not quite the way he wanted it. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And that brings us to the conclusion of the matter. As you sit here today, right this moment, Sunday morning, October the 11th, 2021, or as you watch this video, whatever year and time it may be after this morning, the simple question is this. Do you love and trust God enough 
to do exactly what he said, how he said, and why he said it in order to obtain your eternal cleansing from sin or not. Do you trust God enough that when you hear the word of God and God says repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, do you trust God enough to say, that's right, I'm going to do that? Do you? Or are you, like Naaman, going to get all mad and upset and leave in a rage Maybe you're watching this for the first time, like I said, and, and, and you're just somebody in the world that's watching this. Are, are you going to hear this message from God's word and, and leave, leave all upset and still not cleanse because it's not what you expected to hear. It's maybe not what you were prepared to hear. It's, it's maybe not what you've heard growing up. It's, it's, maybe, it's maybe just not what you were prepared to hear. It's not what you've heard before. That's what Naaman did, right? But Naaman came back around to what God said and Naaman was cleansed. Please, if you're here this morning, consider what God said and accept it for what God said. Don't be upset if it's not what you expected to hear, that you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you've already done that, and you're still standing strong in your faith like Elijah, that's awesome. But if you started in some way to fall back, maybe into what the world has to offer... Maybe you've been tempted a little bit too much and you've begun to fall back into what the world has to offer like Gehazi. Don't let it go any further. James chapter 1, 12 through 17 takes care of, talks about that temptation process and how to nip it in the bud. You need the prayers of the church to be stronger if you're afraid that you might be slipping in your faith. We'd love to pray for you, right church? We'd love to see a new baby in Christ born. You know what God said to do. If you have a need to do that, Please come forward right now while we stand and while we sing.